0: When I was finishing, when Carol and I were finishing our term in uh, missions in Austria, I came across a book that was very seminal, very instructive for me. It was called The Fox's Book of Martyrs. It's uh, a book written by um, John Fox in the 16th century, and he had kind of catalogued all the martyrdoms, all the suffering uh, to death of people who believed. It's, a, it's an incredibly challenging book to read, to see suffering after suffering after suffering, to death in the vast majority of cases. But it's, a, it's incredibly encouraging to see the grace of God uphold people in the midst of great trials. I mean, the greatest trial, your life is being threatened, and yet they are found faithful. So as I've read this, I was greatly encouraged and I really, I really encourage you to consider reading it. Um, Fox's Book of Martyrs, a great book. And, and it, it kind of prepares us for today, this idea of martyrdom, because our text today in Matthew 14 is really the first martyrdom. John the Baptist. Horrific display. It's a murder, is what it was. But it was a martyrdom, and he was really the first one. Um, but before I go there, I, I want to remind you where we've been. You know, we... We took a a side route with the Messianic Psalms before Christmas. So let me just remind you of where we are in Matthew. So Matthew has a clear intent. I mean, when he wrote the book, as you would write a letter, you have intent to why you write things. His intent was that everyone who reads the gospel would see that Jesus Christ is the one that God appointed to be the Messiah and to establish God's kingdom. And to reverse the ruin of sin, to bring forgiveness of sin and removal of shame, and to establish us in joy, making all things new. That is Matthew's intent. This is Jesus, and this is who he is and what he's done. Now, listen, that's a tall order. To do all those things I just said reverse the ruin of sin and take away the shame and all that's a tall order. And so he begins to delineate the credentials of Jesus. And so when you look at the first four chapters of Matthew, you see that he's he's from the line of Abraham. He's been brought forth by the Spirit of God. He's worshipped by earthly kings. He's challenged by other earthly kings and even cosmic rulers. You see this attack, and yet he survives. He gets baptized, and he begins to preach that the kingdom of God is now at hand. So, so clearly, Matthew has identified the lineage and the purpose is to preach this kingdom of God. And then in 5, 6, and 7, you have him teach. He's a king, so he begins to teach his people. He instructs his people. This is life in the kingdom. And so that's you have the Sermon on the Mount, 5, 6, and 7. But then in 8 and 9, he begins to list all these miracles that this king has divine power to do. And so you have these three sets of three plus one, these ten miracles of cleansing the leper, of of freeing the demonized, of raising the dead. He's a king with a kingdom, and now he's got power. And then in chapter 10, it takes his turn. He starts collecting people. He calls the disciples to himself. He sets up a new Israel. He calls 12 disciples, just like the 12 tribes of Israel. Gets them together, and people begin streaming into his kingdom by faith. And then massive shift occurs in 11 and 12 where people begin opposing him, and they reject him. The king has finally come with his kingdom. Here it is, he's established it, he's taught it, he's shown his power, and they reject him. Apathetically, antagonistically, they reject him. And then do you remember in 13, it was a chapter full of parables, and Jesus is predominantly speaking to his disciples, and he's saying, listen, the kingdom is beyond measure. It has a value that you can't calculate. It's a kingdom that's going to come in its fullness. I'm establishing, but it's going to grow. Remember we looked at the leaven and the mustard seed? Mustard seeds pretty unimpressive as a seed. But when it grows fully, it's the largest bush in the garden, the largest tree in the garden, and all the birds of the air, which we knew were the nations of the world, are going to find room in its branches. Jesus is saying the kingdom is going to grow incredibly large and glorious. Then you come to 14. And at 14, it's this another shift. What's happening? I mean, a man is murdered. It, it's the recording of the death of John. So why here? Now, when you, read it, when you hear a lot of preachers hit this, and they speak about the fearlessness of John, and, and he was fearless, no doubt about that. And you hear about the fearfulness of Herod, and he was full of fear. But in my mind, I thought, well, but why did he put it here? You're going to notice in, chapter, in verse 3, that it's kind of a flashback. He's telling a story that's already happened. So it's not in chronological order. John had already been killed, but why insert it here? This is why you ask questions of the text. You don't want to just read and say, oh, John was a a guy I want to follow. It is true, but there's more going on. I think what Matthew's doing is he's showing us the reason he puts it after all this opposition, that the kingdom is still growing, is he's saying that the kingdom is going to grow through suffering and through death. In other words, the people, John, becomes a paradigm for us, not just for what Jesus has in front of him, but what we will have as well. It's a sober message. It's a sober story. That God is so great that he's going to even move his kingdom through the suffering and the trial of the saints, John being the first one. So it kind of takes your breath away a little bit. Yes, the kingdom will advance, but it's going to advance in very ironic ways. So let's turn, if you will, to Matthew 14. I want to read it to you, and I'm just going to draw three truths out of this. And and, and they're simply this, that the kingdom of God is going to advance in the midst of unbelief. So the fact that people don't believe, the fact that people reject, it should not be a surprise to you. Secondly, the kingdom is going to advance through the preaching of the gospel. There is no other way. Trying to secure some cultural authority In a government, that isn't going to, how the kingdom is going to advance. It's going to be through the preaching of the gospel, and then it's going to advance actually through your suffering and my suffering and ultimately our death. And we'll look at how that happens with John. So let's look at Matthew 14. He says, At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. This is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. So he's trying to understand Jesus, And now in three, we kind of have this flashback. For Herod had seized John. So he's speaking about what happened in the past. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry because of his oaths and his guests. He commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. First thing you see is Herod. He hears the fame of Jesus. He says, at that time, Herod heard the fame. In other words, the, the, the talk about Jesus' ministry had even moved up into the halls of power, of government. And, and let me explain who Herod is. A lot of Herods in the Bible, right? There, there's, this is Herod Antipas. Antipas. He's the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great, he was great because he was an effective ruler, tyrant, but we found Herod the Great in chapter 2 of Matthew. He's the one that tried to kill Jesus while just a child, ended up slaughtering the sons of Bethlehem, trying to root out and destroy this king, Jesus, that had been born, that he had heard about the wise men. So that's Herod the Great, the father. This is Herod Antipas. Now, he's a tetrarch. Tetrarch is just a term. It's a mathematical term, one-fourth. I don't know why they used it. He had three sons, and it was broken off into the three. Herod Antipas was the son that ruled over Galilee and Perea. And so that's probably how he came to hear the fame of Jesus. Now, when he heard the fame of Jesus, he's trying to interpret Jesus. He's trying to interpret what is going on. He doesn't understand. And so you see his superstition in thinking, well, John must have been reincarnated. John, must come, and John didn't do any miracles before, and, and now Jesus does all these miracles. So he's thinking, hey, Jesus is really John reincarnated. Now that he's come back from the dead, he'll have miraculous powers to do those things. So we see Herod, kind of a a little quick study on Herod, is a man that has a certain amount of data about Jesus, and he's trying to put it together without the revelation of God. He's trying to put it together himself. And I find this actually to be relatively um, consistent with the way we live even today. I mean, if you're, if you're not a Christian here, even if you are a Christian here, what we tend to do is we hear the data about Jesus and we make assumptions and we try to interpret it, we try to understand it. So you look at the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus and how do you understand it? Everybody has to process it to a point. Now, he didn't believe. You notice when he says in verse 1, he says, at that time, he's reminding us in chapter 13 at the end of the, at the, end of the chapter that his hometown didn't believe him. Well, Herod doesn't believe him either. There's all kinds of reasons why people don't believe in Jesus. I mean, you have to, you have to understand that, that people don't believe in Jesus because dot, dot, dot. I, I mean, it may be spiritual pride. People don't believe in Jesus Christ because, you know what, they think they're okay. I mean, they don't need your prayers. They don't need to be saved. They're good people. They've tried hard. They're not as bad as others. And they can grade themselves as being okay. And so we don't need this idea of Jesus having to die for my sins. I mean, there is a humility that's demanded to be a Christian, isn't there? I mean, there has to be this recognition that I am unable to deliver myself. And without that humility, there is no salvation. And so a lot of people don't believe in Jesus because they just, they think they're okay. Other people don't believe in Jesus just because they're apathetic. They're not thinking through life. Nobody ever stops. They don't stop and take the time and figure out, why am I here? And what happens when I die? And what's the purpose of my life? And how did I get here? I mean, they don't think through the hard questions. A lot of people say, well, I'm looking at all the religions. Like, it takes a lot of work to investigate the nature of all the different religions. And so a lot of people are just apathetic, and so they kind of disbelieve Jesus in a benign way. Others disbelieve in Jesus because they've been hurt by the church or by a Christian yeah well, i've I know that person they 're a believer, and they they proclaim Christ, but I see their life you know they kind of confuse hypocrisy and and just being a sinner you know we 're all sinners, and so we 're always going to give some bad reflection, but they don 't believe in Jesus because of the failure of his followers, and so they feel justified to not believe. Do you know why if you 're not a christian do you, do you know why you don't believe i mean why don't you believe in Jesus Christ what is what is your reason? I mean, it's good for all of us to ask, why do we believe? Why don't we believe? I mean, we all believe in something. We all, we're all theologians at one level because we all have thoughts about God. When I ask somebody what they think about God, they have no problem spouting out all. Oh, it may all be wrong, but they have no problem sharing it. Now, if you're a Christian here, Herod's instructive for us, Because we can ask ourselves, why do I believe? Why why do I believe that Jesus Christ is actually the Son of God, the Messiah? Why do I believe that? Why do I believe that he has the capacity to save me? I mean, you do not believe. The Christian understands that he does not believe because he has done a careful investigation, he's weighed all the options, and he's found this to be the most pleasing. That is not how we come to faith. The Christian understands that if you believe this, if you're here today and you actually believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, that is a gift to you. That is a gift by God. Jesus said clearly in John 15, 6, you did not choose me, I chose you. So it it leads us to humility. Folks, I I want us to be a church that is marked by a humility. That's an understanding of grace. There's nothing in me. Karen and I were talking the other day. Why do I believe and my cousins don't? Am I somehow better than they are? I'm not brighter than they are. I definitely, in my life, don't have a track record that would be any better than that. Why do I believe? It's a gift of God. It leads us to worship. I mean, If you're a Christian, can you not find within your soul an excitement that you believe him and you're thankful for it? And you can rejoice over it. Listen in 1 Corinthians. Paul's trying to get the Corinthians in their arrogance and pride to believe it. He says, for consider your callings, brothers, for your calling. He says, not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, that is God, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. He's the reason we're there. We're thankful for that. Tim Keller wrote something I found to be kind of a good diagnostic. He says this, how can you tell if he's working on you now? If you begin to sense your lostness and and find yourself wanting to escape it, you should realize that that desire is not something you could have generated on your own. Such a process requires help. And if it's happening, it's a good indication that it is even now at your side. As you feel that movement and that impulse towards God, that's God drawing you to himself. Don't misinterpret that. So rejoice with me that the kingdom of God will advance. God will be calling people to himself, even in a sea of unbelief and confusion. Okay, the second thing I think we see in this passage about the kingdom advancing is it advances through the preaching of the gospel. Look with me back in verse 3. You see him in this flashback section. He says, Herod seized John and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias. So let me give you a little bit of what's going on here. It's really Yeah, it's a a crazy, crazy story, actually. So uh, Herod Antipas was married to the daughter of the king of Petra, which was the country to the east. And uh, he was in, according to Josephus, he was in Rome, and he was smitten with Herodias. Now, Herodias was the daughter of his half-brother. So she was, in effect, his niece. Herodias, when she grew up, married Philip, his half-brother, so in effect she was his sister-in-law. It gets better. So he divorces his wife, and she divorces his half-brother, and they get married. Now, Salome, her daughter, this is where, I mean, you think we're dysfunctional. Herodias' daughter married Herod's other brother, thereby becoming her mother's aunt and sister-in-law. So try to figure that one out. I had the flow charted out to figure that one. But John's going up to him and he's saying, it's unlawful for you to have her as a wife. Why? Well, two divorces created it, number one. Number two, she's your relative. and God's law prohibits us marrying our relatives. And so, and so he, is, he is challenging this man to say, repent of your actions. But, but, but don't, don't think that he's just in prison because he, he challenged Herod and Herodias. His entire ministry was one of preaching repentance. Remember back in Matthew chapter 3, John comes on the scene. John knows he's the forerunner of Jesus. And he's preaching repentance and faith. He says, repent and believe. And and here's the warning he gave. He says, even now the axe is at the root of the tree. Even now judgment is beginning. Why? Because the Messiah has now landed. The Messiah is now on this earth. Judgment, in effect, has begun its slow roll. And so he's calling people, repent. Repent of your sins. What do I mean by that? When someone speaks about repentance, we're talking about a turning away from sin. When I speak about sin, let me make it really easy. It's not actions alone. It's not me committing adultery. It's actions and attitudes. It's me lusting and me committing adultery. Either one is a sin. But let me make it even simpler for you. What sin is, it's simply this. It's you and me trying to find happiness, security, significance apart from God. So when you and I try to manipulate life and we try to go after things to either secure some happiness or some security or some position, that's when we're sinning. And John's saying, repent of living apart from God. Follow God. Repent of your sins. Turn. But you're just not turning from sin. You're turning to God. You're turning to God in faith, believing that he has given us a substitute, Jesus, who's died for our sins, and to walk after him. And again, the warning is that the axis is through the tree. So John is suffering now, and the kingdom is advancing, but it's through the preaching of the gospel, this idea of repentance and belief. Now, again, if you're just looking at Christianity, please don't make the mistake that the Bible is not a book of rules, per se. Yes, it has behaviors in it, but the Bible is fundamentally about declaring the grace of God that he has sent a Messiah to deliver and save. Now, to those that are saved, And to those that God does a regenerating work in their heart, they're going to live differently, and their behaviors are going to change. But you trying to put on a cloak of Bible behavior apart from God's prior work, forget it. It's just going to lead you to frustration. And parents, you want to remember this when you're raising your children and trying to raise them in the faith. It doesn't work that way. The regenerating power of God has to come forth, and then we move out of joy and love as opposed to moving by certain behavioral codes that we think we're doing it because we got got this behavior. So, so, so the Bible is about the grace of God delivering unto us a son that would suffer for us that we might be reconciled. But if you're a Christian here, when you see this example of John, I think it's a good reminder for us as to understand our place in society. That John did, that the, the Church has a prophetic role in the culture. It does. But, but, but it doesn't exercise that role through power, but rather through preaching and really weeping. This idea of we want to be non-combative, we want to be truth-filled, we want to be gracious, and we want to be bold, but we don't see the halls of power that are around us as a means by which we're going to have cultural influence. Let me read to you uh, just a couple lines out of Uh, from John Piper that I found very instructive in terms of trying to understand John the Baptist and how we walk in light of that. He says, the fact that Christians are exiles on earth doesn't mean that they don't care what becomes of culture, but it does mean that they exert their influence as very happy, broken-hearted outsiders. We're happy because of what Christ has done for us. We're broken-hearted at the lostness. He says, American culture doesn't belong to Christians neither in reality nor in biblical theology. It never has. The present tailspin towards Sodom is not a fall from Christian ownership. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one, John says in his first letter. It has since the fall, and it will be until Christ comes in open triumph. God's rightful ownership will be manifest in due time. He says, my main point, being exiles, doesn't mean we're critical or cynical. It does mean Being in, excuse me, it does not mean being indifferent or uninvolved. The soul of the earth doesn't mock rotting meat. Where it can, it saves and seasons. And where it can't, it weeps. And the light of the world doesn't withdraw, saying good riddance to the godless darkness. It labors to illuminate, but not dominate. That's our role. Yes, we want to have. What prophetic role do you have in the lives of people around you? I mean, you've just come out of Christmas, this season that we we sing gospel songs all month long. What role do you have in the lives of those around you, at work, in the community, in the family? How will you, how will you um, use those? How will you exercise your place in the lives of people to speak more prophetically? You have a whole year ahead of you. I would try to be intentional about what relationships can I actively engage with the gospel? Not as a means of changing behavior, but as a means of declaring what God has done for us in Christ, which we're about to talk about. So think about that. If you're a Christian, you're, you're intentional about the relationships that God has given you, and you're going to use those for the advancement of his kingdom by declaring his pri- The axe is already at the root of the trees. Okay, the third thing I want to remind you about this kingdom advancing in suffering is that it does advance through suffering and death. So the kingdom is going to advance in a sea of unbelief, and it's going to advance through the preaching of the gospel, and the preaching of the gospel is going to bring on suffering and death, and that's how the kingdom's going to go forth. So you have John now. He's sitting in prison. The prison, most scholars believe, was a place called Machairus. It was a desert palace, but it had a prison underneath of it. It actually has been excavated of late, and you can actually go into the basement and see these iron uh, rings on the wall where prisoners would have been chained. So Herod builds his palace, thick walls, 100-foot towers, beautiful, opulent in every way, and yet in the basement of it, underneath of it all, are these oppressive Prisons. I mean, the the contrast is unbelievable. You know, just the, the glory of the palace and the grime of this prison. And so John is languishing there because of his boldness in preaching the gospel until Herod's birthday, and then he dies. John dies. He's murdered on Herod's birthday. Now, let me explain. Greeks celebrated birthday parties. But their birthday parties were a bit different than ours. Their birthday parties maybe were a little bit more analogous to a bachelor party, is probably a better analogy. It would be mostly men. There would be a lot of alcohol, and there would be women who would dance, professional dancers, often prostitutes. And it was a time of great feasting and excitement. And so Herodias sees the door crack, thinking, well, I'm going to put my daughter, shows you level of mother in here, I think, but she's going to put her daughter forth and she's going to dance for them. Now, given the debauchery of Herod's house and the sexual license, this would not have been your run-of-the-mill macarena. It would not have been that. It would have been sensual, seductive, it would have been lust filled in a room of a manebriated man. And it was effective because he promises her, according to Mark's gospel, Up to half his kingdom, foolish men make foolish promises when they're inebriated, and he did. And then the fear of man kicked in, and when she said, I want the head of the Baptist, he couldn't go back and lose face. And so he sent and dispatched the guards to take off his head. Now, can you imagine the quietness of a dungeon? The sound interrupted, the silence interrupted, by guards coming down the stairs, hearing their clinging armaments, heavy wooden doors swinging open, the only light that comes in now flashes off the swords that they carry, and they take his head off. Now you think, how could that be? Well, you know, when you look at ISIS and you see the absolute, the absolute animalistic behavior, it's in All of us. It was them. Do you realize that Nero, the emperor, would often illuminate parties with the bodies of burning Christians? Or Alexander Eunius, actually Herodias' ancestor, one time at the height of revelry, had hundreds of men crucified before the partygoers. These were people opposed to his reign. Well, crucify him. That is what is in us. This is why we have to be delivered from ourselves. We're cultured, cleaned up, much due to the influences of the Judeo-Christian ethic. But, but, But that is in us. But what I want you to see about this passage is in verse 12. Look what it says. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. They took this trunk of a man and they buried him. And they went and told Jesus. Can you imagine they went and told Jesus? Even Jonathan Edwards took that passage and he preached about you can go and tell Jesus your troubles. And, well, I would encourage you to go and tell Jesus your troubles. I think there's a lot more going on. Why would they tell him? What would they have to, And what would Jesus have thought? I, I think that it was a signal to Jesus. It was a clear indication this is what's coming. This is what is before me. John's ministry was inextricably linked to Jesus. John was prophesied in the Old Testament that he would be born and he would would be the forerunner of the Messiah. Jesus, of course, continued John's ministry. They were cousins. They preached the same message. They called for repentance and faith. I think this is clearly an indication John's Role that God had appointed to him before the foundation of the world was over. And now, Jesus, you are walking the same way. And we're going to see this because, although next week we'll do the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, and we're going to do the walking on the water, after that, Jesus begins to predict his own death. Everything turns now towards Calvary. Everything is now moving to the cross. And this is the marker. The whole thing swings. And the tenor and the text and the texture of this gospel is going to shift towards looking at the cross. And that's what we see here. Jesus knew he would die. He said, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it'll bear much fruit. Jesus knew the necessity that he had to die. Jesus, John, I should say, is a foreshadowing of what would happen to Jesus. Jesus knew he had to die because he had to establish a better covenant. Remember now, in the Old Testament, the covenant, you know, the blood that's shed by bulls. Bulls and goats, it never took away sin. It was always looking at a greater covenant, a better covenant. So Jesus knew he had to shed his blood so as to establish a covenant so that God could now be merciful to us. And it would be through his death and the shedding of blood. There is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. Hence, the the blood of Christ was shed for us. Profound idea that God would move his kingdom forward in a sea of unbelief through the preaching of the gospel even through suffering and death, not just of John and of Jesus, but even of us. We will suffer, and God will be honored as he perseveres us as we declare his glory. So as we look at this year, let me just give you a couple thoughts to think about. I I, I have a number of these things. I didn't develop them fully, uh, but I want to throw them at you and have you think about them. But things to think about in light of the change in the gospel, and uh, this new year. Number one, I I would just, in terms of application, I would just warn us all, don't assume you're going to live a long life. Just don't assume that God's going to deliver you out of every struggle and every trial, even ultimately giving you, everybody here, 70 or 80 years. Let's not assume that. I mean, John wasn't delivered. I'm sure John was praying, he wasn't delivered. He didn't see a miracle. Uh, The bars didn't open up. For him, like they did Peter, angels didn't come and take him out. And here's John, he's languishing in prison, rotting away in there, suffering. He had no justice. I mean, he he never got his day in court. He never got to give his side of the story. He died. God's plan for him was ended, and it was over. Do you think he's complaining? Do you think John right now is upset about the plan that God had for him? Do you think John in any way holds God in contempt for ending his life in his 30s? I don't think so. I think he's rejoicing. What would you do if you were told this year, you're told you got one year left to live. What would you think about God at that point? Would you be mad at him? Would you think he's being unfair to you? Would you get on a bucket list and want to start you know, jumping out of planes or rock climbing? Or, what would you want to do? Would you want to ready your soul? Would you want to reconcile your relationships? Would you consider gain? That's what Paul said. Think about it. Let's not assume we're going to live long lives. Let's just not assume that. Secondly, let's not be surprised about suffering. I mean, here's John. He is the forerunner of the Messiah. I mean, he's the one that was preparing the way. Jesus said about John, there is no one greater on earth. Do you hear that? Jesus, the perfect judge of character, says he's the greatest. And he died before 34. He said, Jesus said he is a burning and shining lamp. In other words, he is just displaying the greatness of God, declaring the wisdom of God. And yet this forerunner, this great man, this shining lamp, suffered greatly. It's a paradigm for us. Now, we all don't suffer the same way. I don't want you, sometimes you read about the saints who are in the Middle East or in North Africa or in Asia, and they're being called right now to suffer. I mean, many are suffering physically, and many are suffering both with, you know, suffering the physical Torture on their bodies, they're also suffering loss of freedoms. They're suffering. Their kids don't have any opportunities that our children have. Think about it. You as a parent love for your kids to have every opportunity afforded to them, and they don't have that. And God, it says in Philippians, has granted to us to believe and to suffer, and it's been granted to them to suffer. We don't suffer in the same way here. I'm not asking God for it. Our suffering is different. It may be condescension of the non-believer. It may be exclusion from friendships. It may be perhaps you don't get the upward movement in the company. Maybe your reputation suffers. I'm not trying to weight suffering. I trust that God distributes that as he does. But I just want to be mindful that all these sufferings, we want it to be for the good. We want it to be for the gospel. We don't want it to simply be because we've done something foolish. So let's not be surprised at the suffering that we're going to embrace. There is hardship, and there may be. You know, there is an increasing rhetoric. You know, Newsweek just had this really kind of scathing piece on the Bible, if you've read it. Uh, just a, a real, I mean, just, yeah, in a very condescending, imbalanced way, I would argue, a, a very scathing article. Or, or you have this increased rhetoric. There was a plane, I think it was from, from Texas to L.A. that was diverted to Albuquerque because one guy blew his stack over being told twice, Merry Christmas. And, and he became such a concern that they landed the plane um, just in case. When he left, of course, everybody clapped, which you can imagine. But, but, but it's a picture. It's a picture of antagonism increasing. What will we do? Will you be surprised when someone treats you differently? Are you going to stand up for your rights and be totally offended by that? Or are you going to say, no, that's, that's I, mean, I mean, speak truth, but should we not expect it? I would also say, um, I got more and they're good. Yeah, don't think that suffering or prison can stop the gospel. Don't think that any sort of suffering we can embrace will stop the gospel. I was instructed, I was reading through Philippians. I read um, in the first chapter, Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So he's saying his imprisonment is advancing the gospel. And the the irony of all this is what Carol pointed out to me later, which is Philippians at the end of Chapter 4, verse 21, he says, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The gospel had seeped into Caesar's own household. So here he is in prison, and the gospel is being advanced now as he begins to preach in prison, and it seeps out to the Praetorian Guard and even into Caesar's household. So suffering doesn't stop the advance of the gospel. It's incredible to know that. Your suffering advances it, and we suffer well. But also, don't expect a reward in this life. Now, I know that goes against so much of what we want to hear in terms of your best life now, or really the prosperity doctrine. It's a pernicious doctrine. The idea that you should have everything now, and God is for you now in terms of everything coming your way when you ask for it, it's pernicious, it's destructive. It'll ruin true faith. You cannot expect your reward now. In fact, J.C. Raw gave these words. He says, Let all true Christians remember that their best things are yet to come. Let us count it no strange thing if we have sufferings in this present time. It's a season of probation. We are yet at school. We are learning patience, long suffering, gentleness, meekness, which we could hardly learn if we had our good things now. But there is an eternal holiday yet to begin. And for this, let us wait quietly, and it will make amends for all. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, works for us a far more exceeding an eternal weight of glory. Just two other ones. Don't expect full justice. I mean, people want to say, why did God let John die so young? Why does God let people suffer? What's God doing? And we move in contempt towards God. There is only approximate proximate justice that will get on this earth. We cannot receive the full measure of justice. There are still yet for people to suffer. Do you realize in Revelation chapter 6, these are sobering words, he says, and when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of heaven, excuse me, I saw the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. So, they preached the gospel, they suffered and died. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood On those who dwell on the earth. And then they were given each a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. I mean, that's incredible. There's a season of time, but justice will come, mind you. It'll come. In fact, in Isaiah 26, he says, For behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. Listen. And the earth will disclose the blood shed on it and will no more cover its slain. There will be a time everything comes out. In fact, Lewis gives these words. He says, this is what mortals misunderstand. They say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. So that's the Christian view, is even in suffering, it's going to be turned back. glory so last we don't fear man we fear god jesus said clearly don't fear the one who can kill the body fear the one who can kill the body and the soul fear him so when you fear god when you and i fear god then the sufferings the temporal sufferings of men do not intimidate us cancer does not intimidate us job loss does not intimidate us a decreasing physical ability doesn't intimidate us because we fear the one who holds both our life and our soul. So this is a sobering passage. It's a challenge to us that the kingdom of God is going to advance, and it's going to advance in a sea of unbelief in which we are now planted. It's going to advance through the preaching of the gospel. You're going to now utilize the relationships to bring about the gospel of bear. and it's going to involve through the times and the troubles that you face. And you will thank him for it on that last day. You'll thank him for the trials because those trials will be made glorious. I'm going to pray for us and then we'll prepare for the table. Father, help us to believe this. Give us further faith to believe this is true. Lord, this is a, you're warning us, you're preparing us, you're readying us because you love us. Father, may the truths of this text resonate within our souls father give us the minds to be surprised over our faith but surprised with the joy of it and father give us the boldness the boldness to to utilize the relationships you've given to us to advance your gospel gently but truthfully and give us the grace to endure hardship whatever it may be knowing that it's going to advance your gospel, it's going to advance your glory, and it's going to advance our ultimate happiness. May you give us the grace to see death as a means of gain and not loss. Only you can do this. No amount of verbal persuasion or perfect articulation can change our hearts on this. It has to be by your spirit. And we ask for this in the name of Jesus. Amen.